0: Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see all your smiling faces here this morning. We are coming towards the end of the series that we've been in over the course of the summer looking at figures from Scripture, and uh, we've called it the Cloud of Witnesses. Um, And as I was diving into the passage for this morning, I just was reflecting on how important it is that we take the time to do this, to be in Scripture Many of us grew up in the church. Um, a lot of these stories are familiar to us, but I think that we can we can kind of uh, click into um, autopilot and just assume that oh yeah I know the story, and so then we don't go back and we don't spend the time to read it and to reread it and to reread it again. And I found myself surprised as I read this passage this morning. Uh, my assumptions were challenged about myself about who I am and about God, and I think that that is the value of continuing to come back to scripture throughout our lives, is that as we grow, scripture speaks to us differently. It is a living word, and so I just wanted to say that as we dive in this morning. So just to set us in our context for this morning, we're looking at Rahab, and she may be someone who is familiar, maybe she's unfamiliar, um... But the passage that we're going to look at is in Joshua chapter 2. And this comes at the end of Israel's time in the wilderness. You remember um, God rescued Israel from slavery. And then because they were rebellious, they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness on their way to the promised land. You could walk this distance in a matter of weeks. And Israel wandered for 40 years until... All of the folks who had rebelled against God had passed away, and a new generation was raised up. And at that point, that's where we pick up the story, Um, Moses wasn't even able to enter into the Promised Land because of his sin in the wilderness and his leadership of Israel. And so God raises up a new leader, and the, the leader that he appoints to bring Israel into the Promised Land is Joshua, who this book is named after. And so they are poised Um, on one side of the Jordan River, preparing to enter into the promised land, to cross across the river. And if you remember, um, God has told Israel, you need to conquer the Canaanites. You need to wipe them out. That's a hard thing for us to hear, and we're going to look at that a little bit this morning. Um, but as Israel prepares to enter into the land, Joshua sends two spies across the river to scout things out. And they enter into the city of Jericho, which is a heavily fortified, walled city. And so that's what we're going to pick up reading this morning. Jeremy, there's a whole lot of scripture. Don't even bother um, projecting it. I'm just going to read it, all right? So uh, just... Enjoy. I'm going to read most of chapter 2 because this is a story that I think is best heard in its entirety. So just listen to the word of the Lord this morning. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies, I'm going to swear in church, from Shittim. (laughs) Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and they entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and they stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the land. But the woman had taken the two men and had hidden them. And she said, yes, the two men came to me, but I didn't know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But in reality, she had taken them up to the roof and had hidden them under the stalks of flax that she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone, the gate was closed. Before the spies lay down for the night, Rahab went up on the roof and she said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you. And that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now, remember who is saying this. This is Rahab. This is a Canaanite. This is a pagan. This is a prostitute. And this is a profession of faith in the Lord of Israel right here. Now, then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my family, my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return, and then go on your way. Now the men had said to her, the oath you made us swear will not be binding on us. "'Unless, when we enter the land, "'you have tied this scarlet cord in the window "'through which you let us down, "'and unless you have brought your father and your mother, "'your brothers and all your family into your house. "'If any of them go outside your house into the street, "'their blood will be on their own heads. "'We will not be responsible for those who are in the house with you, "'or as for those who are in the house with you. "'Their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. "'But if you tell what we are doing,' We will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. So then skipping ahead um, to chapter 6, just so that we get the end of Rahab's story. Um, The Israelites do come, and they attack Jericho, and if you remember from your Sunday school days, they marched around the the city seven times and they blew their trumpets and the walls came tumbling down, right? Well, on the final day, just before the walls came down, Joshua commanded the army. He said, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies, So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp. So Joshua spared Rahab, the prostitute. Let me pray, and then we'll take some time to walk through this together. Lord, stories of prostitutes are not the things that we necessarily expect to hear when we come to church on Sunday morning, and yet this is scripture. This is your word for us this morning. Lord, I ask that you would shake us up, that you would surprise us, that you would challenge some of our assumptions this morning, and that we would walk away from here with a clearer understanding of who we are, who you are, and that we would have increased reason to hope. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, just a little bit of a note here. We know that Jericho is a walled city, and you can still today go and see the walls of Jericho. And often in those days, there would have been two walls, about 12 to 15 feet apart. And so Rahab's house most likely was built on top of these two walls. They would have put boards between the two walls and then actually built homes and structures around the outside of the city. And so if you can picture Rahab's home, she was right here on the edge of the city, probably with a window that looked out. Um, And so if you think about it, for the spies, this was probably a, a home that they could see even from outside of the city walls. They probably would have been aware of what was going on there. So it was an easy place for them to get to, and it was an easy place for them to get away from But it's also a safe place because of the work that God has been doing in Rahab's heart before they even come. And we see that there has clearly been work happening in Rahab's heart when we hear this profession of faith that she makes to the spies as they come in. Now, Rahab's story falls right in the midst of a portion of scripture that many of us probably avoid. Because it is uncomfortable for us. Because what we see in these Old Testament passages seems to us to be a God who we want to believe is loving and good, commanding genocide. And we can't reconcile these passages with our experience in our own lives, perhaps, with what we read of Jesus in the New Testament. And so it's easier to just kind of chuck this Maybe we just kind of sever off the entire Old Testament and say we're going to focus on Jesus, right? And yet this is scripture, and it is here for us. And I have a couple thoughts um, that will maybe help us to be present and to actually engage this passage. So the first thing that kind of stood out to me as I was reflecting on this and this tendency in myself to just kind of want to bypass these hard-to-read passages is that God seems to consistently deal very harshly with sin at a systemic macro level throughout Scripture. Um, but he is always quick to extend grace and salvation to faithful individuals within the system. So he's quick to address sin on the stomach level, but he's quick to offer grace any time there is an individual who shows faith right? We see this in Noah with the flood. The whole world is flooded, but God sees a faithful family, and he saves them. We see this here, Rahab, a faithful prostitute who has faith growing in her heart in the midst of a Canaanite culture devoted to idol worship and pagan uh, sacrifices and temple prostitution. Here's one faithful one. He saves her, We see this consistently throughout scripture, that when God sees faithfulness in the heart of an individual, he shows grace. So I just wanted to throw that out there. The other thing that I found, um, when I read these passages, kind of throughout my life, I have always associated myself with Israel. And so as I read these passages, what I see or what I have always understood is that I am commanded to go in and purge all of the evil, And in these stories, it means obliterating entire people groups. Well, then the social justice activist in me gets riled, right? And I think many of us read these passages, and that is our response. We want to be an activist on behalf of Canaan. Like, this is wrong, right? (laughs) You don't do this to people groups. However, as followers of Jesus we are in fact children of god and we can identify with israel now but this passage these passages were not originally written to us all of us here unless you have a jewish lineage have been adopted into god's family all of us here i may not i may be missing someone who's jewish but i'm going to say most all of us are actually gentile believers And so in this story, we are not Joshua, we are not the Israelite army, we are Rahab the prostitute. We are the Canaanites, who are sitting in fear, quivering, knowing that the Israelite army is poised on the other side of the river, getting ready to come and wipe us out because of our sinful ways. Now if we can put ourselves in their shoes, if we can imagine that we are Rahab, and then read to the end of the story, what we discover is not the judgment and the vengeance of God. We discover grace. That God sees me. He sees us in the midst of the sinfulness around us. He sees the faith in our heart, and he sets us apart. He saves us. So hopefully things can change, in the way that we engage scripture, if we find ourselves in the appropriate figures in the story. And I think, well, we won't get into that. When we are Rahab in the story, we encounter the grace of God. And the truth is that this grace extended to all people has been God's plan from the very beginning, isn't it? At the very beginning, God chooses Abraham. He sets him apart. He says, I am going to bless you. I'm going to multiply your descendants until they are as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Now, is he doing that just because Abraham is all that? No. Abraham is just another dude. He does that because he sees faith in Abraham's heart. But he says, Abraham, I'm not doing this just for you. Through you, I'm going to bless all nations. God's intention from the very beginning in choosing a people was to work through that people to bless all nations. So far from being an exception, Rahab is an example of God's ultimate purpose to draw all peoples to himself. And in that, Rahab is a prologue to the salvation story that finds its conclusion in Jesus. We see grace extended here, and it points us ahead to the ultimate resolution when Christ dies on the cross and offers grace to anyone who will put their trust in him. Now, we could go all sorts of directions in looking at the remainder of this story, but I want to focus our attention on three things that this passage reveals to us about God and about his character. So the first thing that we see in this story is that God loves us where we are. I asked Drew and the worship team to play Reckless Love um, before the sermon this morning because I feel like it articulates perfectly um, what this story shows. So so the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. It chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. Now, I... Don't spend a lot of time surfing Christian blogs, and so I think I have missed a debate that has been ongoing about this song until recently. I recently joined a a Facebook group for Christian Reformed pastors, and one of them posed a question, Hey guys, what do you think, hey guys, because most of them are guys, um, what do you think about this song? And it generated, you know, 50-something comments, which, of course, I started reading because I like the song. <laughs> and uh, there was a lot of mixed reviews about this song, and it centers around the use of reckless in describing God. A lot of folks just cannot get their minds around um, describing God with a term that, for them, is a kind of a, a negative term, this idea of being reckless, right? If your parents call you reckless, it's not something that they are saying uh, with joy in their hearts, right? <laughs> Uh, you know, my, my Google search, you know, reckless is being without thinking or caring about the consequences of an action. It's having a lack of proper caution. And so yes, typically for human beings, recklessness is not seen as a positive attribute. And that I think is completely accurate that God is described as a God who loves recklessly if we are honest with who we are. So I first encountered this song. I'm sure I'd heard it before on the radio. But the time that it actually stuck in my brain, Mark and I, um, in the spring, went to the Refresh Conference, which is a a conference for um, foster and adoptive parents. And this song was sung there. And in that context, my mind was full of our experience fostering. And I was looking around at this room full of parents who, many of them have fostered dozens and more children. And our experience in this last year and a half has taught us that fostering is hard and that the kids who are in the foster care system are hard to love, not because they are unlovable, but because their life situation has shaped them in ways that it's hard to recover from. And so as this song was sung, I was thinking about the fact that God loves these kids recklessly, right? It's always the other person that's hard to love, right? (laughs) And I was feeling convicted that I, too, needed to love like God loves. But then the next thing that happened was realizing, no, I am that kid that is hard to love. We are all that kid. If we are honest about what is going on inside, that part of us that we hide from the world, behind those masks that we put on, we are all hard to love. And yet, God loves us with wild abandon. We are Rahab the prostitute, and yet God loves us with his whole heart. God loves us where we are. The second thing that stood out to me in this passage is that God uses us where we are. Now, many would assume that Rahab, being a woman, being a pagan, being a prostitute, would have been overlooked by God. She is not the one that you would have singled out to be the hero, the shiro. I love that. Of this story. She's not worthy of our time and attention, and yet she was worthy of God's time and God's attention. God surprises us. He challenges us. He is not as prim and proper as we are. And he uses Rahab to to go about his work of salvation. Now, the only place where people didn't act like or talk alike was not the house of prayer. It was not the synagogue in this this town. It was the house of prostitution. Any place else would have been too homogenous for these strangers to come in and to be unnoticed. But the combined desires for sex and for money cuts across all barriers, economic, religious, national. And so because of who Rahab is, because of her unsavory profession, Rahab accepts these men, she allows them in, and she ultimately saves them. God accepts Rahab as she is, and he works through her as she is, and because of who she is, to be able to do this powerful work. God is not as prim and proper as we are. And we see this reflected in Christ as well. If we think over the stories of his life, Jesus had a tendency to draw the unsavory characters around him, and it drove the religious leaders crazy, didn't it? He would choose to hang out with women caught in adultery, to sit at the table with sinners and tax collectors, rather than to go to the homes of the elite. Well, there are people that argue that Rahab's story should not be preached, that it's too R rated to have a place on Sunday morning. I read that debate this week. Um, And this is the same tendency that makes us feel that we need to be put together in order to come to church, right? That our families need to look like the pottery barn. Pottery barn's furniture, what's clothing? I shop at Value Village, Nordstrom, yes, (laughs) right? That we need to be like the Nordstrom-like models before we can come to church. But these, these stories, Rahab's stories, reminds us that God loves to work in the middle of our dysfunction, in the middle of our messes, and that, in fact, he can work because of those messes to shape us and to do powerful works through us. God uses us where we are. Frederick Beekner, B-U-E, says Beekner. <laughs> I pronounce that wrong all of the time. So he says, real saints are not born, they are made. And they are made in the hard-knock realities of real lives filled with failures and mistakes. So Rahab's story offers us hope, with her oh-so-visible sin right alongside the clear evidence of God working through her. Hope that God not only can but very often does work smack in the middle of our messes, our brokenness, our sibling rivalries, our poor choices, all of the big and little ways that we wound one another. In these hard realities of life, God is working. God is shaping us, lovingly forming us, building qualities in us that are good and that can be used by him. Most heroes are exceptional and everyday people all at the same time, right? This is how God works. He brings greatness out of weakness. He puts treasures in clay jars. So God uses us where we are. But then the third thing that stands out in this story is that God loves us too much to leave us where we are, Right? Rahab was in the outermost circle of faith when she met the spies. She was able to articulate the basics of faith, but it hadn't transformed her entirely yet. But the nearer she got to the Lord, the more she began to reflect him. And this is the way that it works. We don't know a lot about the rest of Rahab's story, but we know enough to know that there was a radical transformation that took place in her life after this story took place. She's mentioned in, the gen- in Jesus' genealogy in the beginning of Matthew. She is the great-great-grandmother of David. So we know that she married, she had a family, and then she is heralded in, in the New Testament as one of the examples of the faithful in Hebrews. And she's affirmed in the book of James for her good works. There's a transformation that happens in Rahab. God is able to use even the most unlikely of us, and in the process he transforms us. He loves us too much to leave us where we are. So Rahab is a paradigm of hope for us. Her story shows that our current failures do not have to define us. They don't have to limit our future. The old idols, the old corrupt ways of the past, they can be given up. What Rahab did in walking away from a corrupt way of life, walking away from the idols of Canaan, we too can do, thanks to the transforming grace and power of Jesus at work in our lives. And Rahab reminds us that the God of the Old Testament is not a different God than the New Testament. God is then and always has been the God who leaves the 99 in order to go in search of the one. Rahab's story reminds us that God is recklessly loving, that he loves us as we are, where we are, no matter who we are. This is who God is. And for this reason, we can always hope. Amen? I'm so glad I got to preach on this passage. (laughs) Well, friends, we're going to come to the table. Christ broken and poured out because he loves us recklessly. So we're going to take a moment to, to quiet our hearts, to, um, to reflect on maybe what he's been churning up in you in the last few minutes, and then we'll come to the table. Let's pray.